With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. To this is your sporting life with Peter Donegan. Another Sunday morning, another chance to catch up with uh, someone who has made their mark on Australian sport on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And my guest this morning has made his mark as a footballer, but also as we appreciate the ashes and we appreciate top-level cricket at this time of the year, this gentleman had a big say in the way that cricket has formed into what it is today. His name is Austin Robertson, Jr., and he joins me from Perth. Austin, welcome. Thanks, Peter. Good to be here. How's lovely Perth? Uh, nice and sunny today. Nice and sunny. Oh, it's always sunny over there, isn't it? <laughs> uh, we have our fair share of rain, uh, particularly in the winter time. Now, you grew up in Perth. What's the buzz around the place at the moment with the new stadium about to open early next year? Um, everybody's been talking about it. They say that it could very well be the most up-to-date stadium in the world. I'm sure there is a buzz around the city about it. Well, there is. Uh, I, I've just come back from the eastern states and drove past it. I haven't been inside as yet, but it looks like a giant spaceship has landed out there, to be quite honest. <laughs> and uh, from what I hear... Uh, I I had a chat uh, with my cousin the other day and uh, uh, he said that he'd actually been toured through and he said it's un- unbelievable what, 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 uh, what's awaiting us, which is fantastic. I thought of the days when World Series cricket was um, coming up and, and knowing that I was talking to you, we're going to talk a lot about it. When you look at something, Austin, like the Ashes series, which is going on at the moment, do you look at cricket these days and ever think, well, if I hadn't done what I did, then cricket today would not be like it is. Uh, look, I, I don't look at it that way, to be honest. Uh, I, but having said that, uh, I think that if I give it a bit of thought, that if we hadn't come along and done what we did when we did, that the players today wouldn't be enjoying the uh, the riches that they are. I don't know how long uh, another entrepreneur would have uh, been in the coming. I think it probably would have come for in, from, from India if it hadn't have been us. Yeah. And I think we were sort of 10, maybe 15 or even 20 years ahead of anybody else giving it a go. It, it, it had been thought, thought of before. There was, there was nothing new in the thought of World Series cricket, uh, but we were the first ones that were able to actually stitch it together uh, so that uh, Kerry was confident enough to take the plunge. We'll talk more about that because it's a fascinating story. I'm actually reading a book at the moment by David Hill, the uh, former ABC Managing Director, who talks about some of the great moments in Australian sport. And he goes through a bit of the process that happened at the time and the meetings that Kerry Packer had with the MCC. And it's a fascinating story. We'll explore that a bit more later on. But I did mention to you before we came on air today that uh, 
You are part of my earliest football memories because you spent one year at South Melbourne back in 1966 and as a little nine-year-old fella, I remember going to watch you. Now, I think I'm right in saying, were you number 16? Yes, I was. I was 16. I've got it tattooed on the inside of my right leg, as a matter of fact. Um, and I was 16 in, in, in Perth, and my telephone number's full of 16s. But um, So it's a pretty favourite number of mine. Uh, and I did only have the one year in South Melbourne, which was sort of disappointing in a way. I had, had Bob Skilton remained coach. Uh, he was my coach in, uh, well, captain coach in 1966, which was the year I played. If he'd gone on with the coaching... Uh, and what Skilt said was that uh, if he didn't improve the team, he would resign. And I think we finished, uh, we must have finished ninth or uh, eighth or ninth in uh, 1965. And we managed to get in, into exactly the same spot in the year I was there. And uh, unfortunately, uh, Bob re- resigned and we inherited a guy, a guy that uh, didn't really want me. So um, That was Alan went, Miller. That was Alan Miller. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 he said, well, look, uh, you've got another two years to run on your contract, but you're not really the player I'm looking for. I'm looking for a more stay-at-home type. And I said, well, you're not looking for me. I said, my game's all built around pace and um, leading and uh, um, I don't think I'm the player you want. So I left. Actually, the the club itself got pretty filthy with me. Um, uh, They weren't happy at all with what went down. But it was pretty hard. I was put in a pretty hard position of having to make a decision about whether I stayed and fulfilled a contract uh, playing under a coach that didn't want me in the team. So <laughs> I, I only had one choice, I think, and uh, it would have changed my life, actually, if I'd stayed in Melbourne. Uh, I hated Melbourne when I first got there, and in the finish, by the time I left, I loved the place. So uh, it's just one of those things that happens. I did come back to Perth, uh, funnily enough, about two years later. It might have been three. Uh, Norm Smith uh, and a couple of South Melbourne people came across and tried to get me to come back and uh, in fact I sort of uh, engaged that thought momentarily and I went to the club to see if I could uh, somehow wangle my way back to Melbourne and uh, they said no definitely not and uh, we won't clear you and there's going to be a hell of a fight so in the finish it all just got too hard so I stayed in Perth. So Austin in light of all of that and in light of the fact that you could have spent your football career here in Victoria do you ever again think about what might have been? Uh, I do occasionally um, it, it was interesting I at the last Hall of Fame dinner I, I ran into Peter, Peter Bedford for the first time mm. and I hadn't met him before and it was good to have a chat to him because he was playing uh, great football with Port Melbourne at the time and South were trying to get him to come across and for a couple of years he didn't and I know that they were trying to get him when I was there and I said to him it was bad luck you weren't there because I only had one player in the South Melbourne side that re- really looked for me his name was Stuart McGee who played on a half forward flank yeah. uh, Graham John was was okay but he wasn't the best uh, bullet pass in the, in the land and of course Skilch used to kick the goals himself so you know it was a, 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 it was sort of catch your own a little bit over there I've got to say and uh, not not easy and I think with Peter Bedford in the side as he proved two years after I'd left I think he came came into the into the south side uh, would have made a huge difference if he'd been there when I was there I reckon. Well you're part of the Hall of Fame now you were inducted in 2015 and and part of the reason is only because a little bit of because of South Melbourne but it's mainly because of what you did in WA football and your goal kicking feats in WA football were legendary and also you were regarded as 
by a lot of people, the greatest set shot to ever play the game. Is that a title that sits well with you? Do you think that you deserve that? Because I think, did you have something like 80% of set shots you kicked goals? Uh, That was about, I wasn't a great snap. In fact, I wasn't a great player on the ground, to be quite frank. But uh, I think the records are a bit scratchy, but that was the figure... Uh, that that has been uh, bandied about a little, that it was as high as 80%. I can remember times when I kicked a whole pile of goals four weeks in a row without kicking a point at all. So it's probably at about that. But, gee whiz, to uh, have anyone mark you ahead of Tony Lockett as a set set shot for goal, or Jason Dunstall for that matter. Peter McKenna was another. Uh, In fact, I think... Right now, uh, in fact, I did a little bit of coaching with the West Coast Eagles last year, uh, with the juniors mainly, um, and I think just recently uh, hasn't Mendixon been appointed at St Kilda? We've got Tony Lockett at the Swans, and mm. we've got Severio Rocker at Carlton. I just can't believe how every AFL club doesn't have a specialist goal-kicking coach. Honestly, you, you can get the yips as a forward, and if you haven't had the yips, it's hard to get out of them. And uh, people like McKenna and Jason and, uh, and well, Tony is now being used. I, I just, the, the time to get these guys is now. And uh, I think it's happening. And I think you'll find not in the too distant future that every club will have a specialist goal kicking coach. And that's a lot of, there's a lot of, it's not, it's not only technical, it's, it's a mental thing as well and how you approach things mentally is very important. Were you the forerunner in lots of ways to the kick that is used mainly for goal now? And uh, as as a lad, I saw not only you, but I saw Peter McKenna a lot because I grew up as a Magpie supporter and saw him kick the drop punt. But you were one of the first to kick the drop punt because the likes of Doug Wade in those days used to kick a lot of flat punts for goal. Yes, I can remember Jack Dyer, actually. I'd I'd played my, uh, my second game down at Geelong, which was a hell of a lot better than the first, I've got to say. And uh, it was Dyer who I heard on the TV, I think it was on Channel 7, say uh, uh, that he, he wanted to go down to Cardinia Park to have a look at Robertson kick these drop punts. Well, uh, sure, well, there were people that kicked them before I did, but they were really from close in. Uh, I was one of the first, and I think Peter was right up there too, at about the same time, as kicking a drop punt over a long distance. Mm. And the first bloke to do that was a guy called Neil Hawke, who actually played Test cricket for Australia, funnily enough. But uh, Hawkey and I had a bit of time together in terms of uh, coaching, and uh, he's no longer with us, Neil, unfortunately. But he was doing drop punts in the late 50s, I think 1957, 58, 59, out of South Australia. Uh, I know that he was kicked a, kicked a goal of the MCG for, for South Australia, playing against Victoria, which went for... 60 metres at least it was from in front of the member stand there somewhere I believe but I, I didn't see that but uh, if you're ever talking to Mike Cowan I think I think maybe he did uh, <laughs> but yeah look one of the early ones definitely to be able to kick a, a drop punt a long way and it served you well uh, what was your biggest bag in a game uh, 15 uh, which was in the last game of 1968 I needed I needed 15 goals to break a long-standing record here, which was a record held by Bernie Naylor, who I think will be inducted into the AFL Hall of Fame, uh, if not next year, the year after, or the year after that. Uh, He certainly deserves to be in there, but it was his record that I broke. And, um, um, yeah, I had lots of 10s and other numbers, but uh, 15 was the most. And just a lazy 162 goals that year. 
Uh, it was actually 167. Oh, sorry to shortchange uh, you. That's okay. <laughs> um, uh, no, no, I beg your pardon. I've got my figures wrong there. Uh, what, the record I broke was 156, which means I kicked 157, and 162 is right because I kicked five in the first semi-final. Oh, there you go. So I beg your pardon, Peter. You, that's you, okay. You, your your research, research is better than my memory. Well, yeah, well, it was a little while ago now, and I want to take you back even further just as we perhaps finish this uh, chapter, the football chapter, and you talked about your speed. Well, you inherited that in lots of ways from your dad because your dad was not only an exceptional footballer with South Melbourne, but he also had a few other strings to his bow. Yes, no, he was the world professional sprint champion in 1933. Um, He defeated a guy called Eddie Tolan who had won the gold medals for the 100 and the 200 and and a a part of the uh, American relay in the 1932 Olympics. In fact, Uh, Tolan's time in 1932 lasted for 12 years, which meant that Jesse Owens in 1936 didn't beat it. Mm. And uh, my dad beat him and I think uh, one of the main runners from England, I can't remember the names, and also all the best runners here. But dad dad would have actually gone to the Olympics, but uh, because he was getting, I think, 15 shillings a week playing for South Melbourne in those days... Uh, he was deemed a professional and of course in those days it was strictly amateur so he was never even considered for an an Australian team but he would have uh, ran ran, I'm sure uh, uh, in the 1932 Olympics uh, uh, had he not been banned as, as being a professional. And not only, Austin, did he miss the 1932 Olympics, but he missed the 1933 Premiership team as well. There was a bit of a story behind that. You mentioned um, Eddie Tolan's name. I think he went over to race him at the Chicago World Fair, and by the time he got over there, Eddie wasn't in training, so it never happened. No, yeah, absolutely right. He ended up racing a, uh, a horse up around a post 50 yards and back again. He beat the horse. <laughs> uh, he raced a whippet. Uh, tied with the whippet. The whippet actually got him on the uh, on the finishing line. <laughs> Obviously, the biggest rabbit the whippet had ever seen. And he, he opened up a, a gash on my dad's arm, actually, which required stitches. And actually, also raced a walker. Uh, and then the wa- that was a handicap thing. And the walker, the walker was the only one to actually beat him. Right. Well, I think I probably know that horse uh, that he beat because uh, most of the horses that I've backed over the journey certainly (laughs) would have been slow enough to fall into that category. One last thing. You played in a premiership team for Subi in 1973. Was that your big moment in footy or what was it? Uh, It was certainly one of them. I I would say probably one of two. Uh, Breaking Bernie Naylor's record was was unforgettable. Uh, Obviously the premiership was huge. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, that was the the team that was coached by Ross Smith, the former St Kilda uh, Brownlow medalist. A terrific bloke, Ross. When he becomes to Perth, we always catch up and uh, I can now also catch up with him at the Hall of Fame dinners because he's a member of that. But uh, he did change the way we played. Um, uh, the season previously to, to Ross, uh, I kicked, I think, 98 goals. And if I'd kicked two more that year, I would have uh, kicked uh, 100, I think, seven, seven, seven years in a row. But Ross changed the mix uh, and I was no longer the centre of it, uh, meaning that, you know, you, often, you would often lead and not get the ball or they wouldn't even try to kick it to you. Uh, but that was okay. Uh, it was a different plan and the plan worked. And 
I was a part of that plan and uh, obviously it meant a lot to me that we won. I'd love to talk more about football, but there is another subject that I need to talk to you about and it's part of your book that has come out, Cricket Outlaws. We'll talk about that on the other side of the break and one of the most revolutionary things that ever happened in Australian sport. Austin Robertson Jr. is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. More with Austin after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. And what a delight it is to have Austin Robertson as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. One thing, Austin, I was going to ask you about that time when you were at South Melbourne. The one thing I remember is that everyone used to say, Ocker, Ocker. Was that your nickname and uh, has that always stuck throughout your life? Uh, yes, it has, and it was my dad's nickname as well, uh, and that's where it came from, obviously, and uh, dad's name came from Toka. It's not Ocker as in uh, an Ocker, mm. it's uh, Ocker as comes from Toka. Where Toka came from, I don't really know, but my dad had about eight brothers and uh, a couple of sisters as well. They, they obviously didn't have TV in those days, mate, because the, <laughs> <laughs> the families were big, but... Um, yeah, so there it is. Uh, I can't tell you about Tocker. I should have asked my dad, but uh, obviously can't do that now. Well, by any other name, it uh, didn't matter what they called you, you certainly made your mark on football. But you made your mark on another sport, and that's something that I want to talk to you about. After your football career, you finish up being employed by Kerry Packer. Now, we know about World Series cricket. We know how it came about. Well, we know certain things about how it came about. But the one thing I want to ask you is a question you've been asked a million times before. How did you keep it a secret? How did you keep something that big under wraps? I, I can only say that you've got to go to the quality of the people that we were dealing with. I think everybody was aware that if anything leaked about it, it was going to put the whole process in jeopardy. I think everyone was well aware of that. Um, you know, it, it was it was just a, it was amazing actually, even with with that being stated and and guaranteed and understood that it kept as quiet as long as it did um we john and i were down in uh, new zealand signing uh, uh well speaking to greg chapel we didn't sign him until during the centenary test but we, we signed dougie walters down there and uh that was in gee whiz i think in february not uh, uh that year and it didn't leak until a party at Tony Gregg's place in June. So that was a hell of a long time for it uh, to be kept under wraps when we were, by that stage, signed up uh, most of the players for the first year, which was supposed to be initially only between Australia and the rest of the world. What happened was that uh, the board attacked us on, on the fact that this was Australia versus, or not Australia, the super tests with Australia playing the world. Where was the international confrontation with another country so Kerry said well we'll fix that we'll just go out and buy the rest of the West Indians which we, which we did and that happened in all in about a week in fact I didn't sign any of those players they were all signed by uh, Mark McCormack's IMG and mm. let me tell you in very very quick time and the John you spoke about is John Cornell, who was uh, another one of Kerry's right-hand men at the time. Uh, for those people with long memories, going back to the Paul Hogan show, of course he played the role of Strop in the Paul Hogan show, but he clearly was a very astute businessman as well, uh, quite in contrast to the character that he played. Yeah, very shrewd. In fact, uh, John and I were great mates. I, I saw Strop first uh, in the late 60s. He, he was a part of John's uh, comedian, uh, comedian, com- 
comedic approach to, 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 to life. Uh, very, very funny. Um, and uh, he sort of developed into what was an unlikely uh, uh, television uh, hero, really. Uh, but... Um, yeah, John, uh, he was he was tough and hard and shrewd and a great negotiator. Um, funnily enough, and I say this in the book, the best thing John Cornell did was actually write. And uh, he was a brilliant journalist, um, went to Sydney to join up with Mike Willisey, and I think he actually stopped writing at that stage and he was into more to television production and then the Hogan shows and then World Series and then Crocodile Dundee after that. So he's had a fabulous career and a fabulous life. You were a journalist yourself at one stage, weren't you? Yes, I started as a, a copy boy, actually. Uh, in fact, Mike Willisey, John Cornell and I all started on the same day. I can remember it, uh, January the 1st, 1961. Hmm. And we all were, well, they were first-year cadets and I was getting sub-editors cups of tea and running, putting up posters around town and all that sort of stuff. And... Uh, yeah, they were uh, they were great days. It was uh, it was called work, but we, we we just went and had a good time really with our work and our journalism and our writing. Willisey also just a brilliant writer, and might I say right now that he's uh, he's also got a book out which is fabulous, also brought out by Pan McMillan, and uh, that's on sale now. In fact, I think our books came out on exactly the same day. And thankfully, uh, uh, I, I actually mentioned Mike in my book, which is purely coincidental and there's a picture of uh, myself and Graham John and him in his book which is rather uh, rather uh, a unique uh, occurrence isn't that amazing 56 years after you first started together uh, on the same day that your lives Mm. would follow a bit of symmetry down the track I've got a feeling that Pan you have to check with Pan Mac but I'm pretty sure that uh, the book came out on the same day incredible can I just take you back one more question about the formation, uh, the embryonic stages of World Series cricket? What was your reaction the first time that Kerry Packer set, set, sat you down and um, mentioned the idea to you? Did you just sit there with your mouth open? Uh, no, it was not quite like that, Pete. Um, we took the idea to him. Okay. Uh, let me let me explain this. Uh, the World Series cricket actually started out of a friendship between Dennis Lilly and I. And you might remember uh, uh, the Southern Star program, um, the Kerry Packer Wars. I don't know whether mm-hmm. how's that the Kerry Packer Wars. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that show was sort of broad brush, okay, but it never gave the detail. And what this book does, it explains how World Series started and how it was put together, but it's told from within. And it was the friendship of Dennis and I, who was bemoaning how poor he was and how poor cricketers were in general and it was me that took that idea to John Cornell when I moved to Sydney at a, around the end of my football career and uh, uh, from there he took it to Kerry Packer. So it was us really that was responsible for taking it to him. So I'll change the question then Austin. When you first mentioned it to Kerry Packer, did he sit there with his <laughs> mouth open? <laughs> well, I didn't go in with John when he saw Kerry first <laughs> up. Uh, John went on his own. And uh, funnily enough, I think Kerry's, uh, well, he was desperate to have cricket on his network. And even though he offered four times what the uh, board were getting from the ABC, uh, he, he uh, um, leapt at the, at the opportunity of uh, actually 
doing it properly. In fact, the idea that was actually taken to Kerry was to play uh, some, some one-day matches between Australia and the rest of the world at the end of a season or at the beginning of a season. Um, he said, no, no. He said, what we're going to do is uh, we'll buy all the best players in the world and we'll have our own test matches. Mm-hmm. So it was Kerry who made a, a pretty big idea anyway into a huge one. So, Austin, talking about World Series cricket... It did take a little while to bed in, I think, as I recall it, because those super tests at Waverley, they weren't played in front of huge numbers. I think you mentioned that. Did it ever cross your mind that perhaps this thing was not going to be as big and as as massive as you envisaged that it was going to be? Peter, I'll say this. You've got to say at the beginning you had to be worried. Uh, I think we thought that television would be the answer to all our woes and it had a terrific uh, amount of publicity. And uh, But in the, at the beginning, the people didn't come. I uh, can't imagine why, because even at Waverley, it was even, we, look, we were looking for reasons. We thought, oh, well, the ground's too far out. Well, it was a long way out. Yeah. But in the finish, we built, and we built, and crowds even came to the uh, to the games at Waverley, which was which was good, but it was a gradual process. I think the big change came at the showgrounds test match in Sydney uh, in the first year, and all of a sudden there were about fifteen or sixteen thousand people there. And, and of course, on the big night uh, that was in the second year on November the twenty eighth. Mm. Um, well, we knew then that we'd sort of won the war, and and really, when you think about it, the compromise came very quickly after that. And that was the famous night where Kerry Packer said, let the crowd in, wasn't it? Yes, well, <laughs> slightly, yes, he did. But what he did was uh, he, he ran down, he was in his shirt sleeves, actually, and he ran down from, from where he was perched up in the, uh, in the grandstand. And I followed him. I was about a, a, probably a metre or two behind. And he actually got to the gates. He could, what he could see was that, the members was fairly empty, but the ground was full, and there was, you know, tens of thousands of people outside waiting to get in who weren't going to get in. So basically what he said to the two ground staff that were there in their grey coats, open the gates, open the gates, and then, of course, they just they, these two guys just froze. And uh, so Kerry took matters into his own hand, opened the gates himself. Now, you've got to try and imagine this. He was actually standing on the turnstiles, which put him... He was a big man, as it was. I don't know, six foot four or six foot five. Mm. And he was... From his knees upward above the crowd, he decided in the in a split second that he was going to charge everybody $10 to get in. Actually, he was, actually he was taking $10 notes. And then, he, and then he handed over to a guy called Bruce McDonald, who was a, a, a one of the staffers at, at World Series. And uh, I was with there with Bruce, and Bruce just looked at me and started to shake his head because there was just... Uh, well, the whole front of the members gate was just a jam of people and as far as we could see the people were still I said mate just just let them in I said we're never going to be able to control this and so the gates all the gates were just thrown open and people poured in and uh, it was just a marvellous marvellous thing to see and a thing to be a part of. So Austin was that the moment that you knew in your heart that you had taken the upper hand from the ACB because in previous negotiations and with the the smaller crowds at Waverley it appeared as though that they were still pretty comfortable but that they were the governing body and they would tell you what to do but then that night changed everything or so it seemed. 
Oh, that night changed everything. I, 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 that's one thing that the Packer, uh, how's that? The Packer Wars got right when they, they had I think uh, uh, Ray Steele and uh, Bob Parrish in a room in one scene, and one said to the other, "We're losing this," and they certainly were. Uh, that was the start of it. Once we got the SCG, we were going to. Uh, Get other other grounds because of the of the money that was being offered, and um, it would have been the beginning of the end for the board, I think. And I think Bradman recognised that. Uh, this is also said in the book that, uh, and this is one aspect of the book that's fantastic because it comes from Lytton Taylor, who was Kerry's right hand man, mm. and he was involved from the he was the one who actually built the business, and uh, it was uh, it was a fantastic time, and and he was a, it, it, again in that television program he was shown to be a. Uh, uh, he was the one that copped all the flack from the, from the big fella. It was nothing like that. Kerry, uh, Kerry had uh, Lytton as his right arm, who was a very astute. He built a fabulous uh, business and um, uh, made Packer scores and scores of millions of dollars. Did it take a little while longer, Austin, for the MCC to come to the party? Because we know that they are somewhat rooted in tradition, if you'll pardon the expression. It yeah. took, took a little <laughs> they, while for them to come around, didn't it? Uh, yeah, I think it, it was a, the English... What, what the Australian Cricket Board did was talk all the other countries into fighting the battle. So it was the ICC, and we it was us who took the ICC to court over restraint of trade. That court case was vital. In, in We had to win that. And once we won that, now players couldn't be banned. It was a whole different ball game. So that's when the war started, and we had a year and a half of that until the night in Sydney. And then very quickly, I think Bradman realised that uh, they were going to lose control of cricket altogether and Kerry would have ended up running it, which he didn't want to do. All he was interested in was the television rights, which he was, you know, basically had anyway through the, his own competition. But um, as I say, I think uh, Bradman said to Linton he said, uh, that uh, they didn't care what it cost. Bradman said to Parrish that they didn't care what it got, what, what it cost or what the deal was as long as the, the cricket board in, ended up controlling the game, which is how it ended up. And for 15 years, the Australian Cricket Board and PBL, Kerry Packer, were partners and very good partners. I think Lytton says in the book that he never got anything but help from uh, from Parrish and from Ray Steele, who were the toughest protagonists uh, at the beginning. They all worked together. Now, I think there's a little. There was a little bit of hate as you went further down. Uh, there was friendships, and uh, I won't say marriages were broken, but certainly there were, you know, even differences of opinion between families. So it was a pretty nasty time. And uh, but once it got back together again, uh, very quickly turned into a bonanza, both for cricket, for the public, and for Kerry. We'll talk more about some of the fallout that happened at that time when we come back on the other side of the break. And, of course, uh, the way that the uh, coverage of cricket on television was revolutionised at that point. Austin Robertson is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, 23 chapels across Victoria, online at tobinbrothers.com.au. Plenty more still to talk about with Austin on the other side of the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. Austin Robertson Jr. is my special guest and it's been a fascinating chat so far as we explore the genesis of World Series cricket. Austin, one thing, one quote I do remember from Kerry Packer when he was going to change the way the game was televised, I think he said, I'm sick and tired of looking at the wicketkeeper's arse all day. 
<laughs> it's funny that you should mention that because uh, uh, that was one of the criticisms that the board had of us at the time, that we, we had the effrontery to be actually shooting the game from both ends. Mm. You know, the, the poor people at home won't know which end they're bowling from. Now, that's how ridiculous it got. Uh, but there was a lot of sniping and... Um, uh, yeah, I, the, the, the television, there was so many things that were changed. And David Hill was the genius there. Uh, Brian, uh, Brian uh, Morelli was uh, the long-time director of World Series Cricket. And in the first year, John Crilly as well. And, of course, there was an electrician. No, not an electrician. He was more of a satellite man. War, Warren Burkery, who was the engineer who made it all work from a technical side. Those three were like the three amigos, really. And it, it just changed the way... Not just cricket was televised, but sport in general. Uh, Hilly and, and Morelli have won so many awards, not just for cricket, but for Formula One and uh, rugby league and all sorts of sports. And Hilly, Hilly now, he's written some brilliant stuff for the book, I've got to say. Uh, has uh, he, he ran uh, the, the, the sporting side of 20th Century Fox for uh, a long time and now is out on his own and has also done the Academy Awards. Yeah. So Hilly's a, a brilliant guy, uh, a great bloke. I uh, loved him dearly and still do, obviously. And as I say, uh, in fact, uh, we haven't seen said much about Richie, but let me say quickly now, he's written a simply brilliant piece about Rich. Uh, in fact, a lot of people have, and we've got three great chapters actually there from uh, one about Rich, one about Kerry, one about Tony Gregg, uh, and everyone has sort of, uh, I, I've written about it, and everyone has, has, has contributed, or a lot of people have contributed to those chapters as well. And speaking of Richie, you can't overestimate the role that he had, because he was the face of it from the word go, and such an enduring character and so much admired by the general public and and that admiration was something that sold your product really well because it was the old thing in advertising if you had someone that you trusted telling you that something was good then you believed it yeah rich was brilliant he's my favorite human being i let me tell you one very quick story i was sitting on a beach with graham mckenzie one day who's mm -hmm. the the australian fast bowler and um we were on a western australian Sheffield Shield tour, as a matter of fact, and we were at Coogee Beach, and he said, "See that apartment up there?" And uh, I said, "Which one?" He said, "Oh, the one on the sixth floor." And I said, "Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah." He said, "Richie Benno lives there," and I thought I was, in, I was awestruck. I thought, "God, I'm so close to Rich," and then I looked up and down Coogee Beach to see if I could see him. Uh, I didn't see him, but amazingly, three and a half years later, I was actually living in that flat with the Benno family. So it's uh, it's amazing <laughs> what how things change, you know, like, uh, but he was my favourite human, Rich. I uh, I love him, loved him dearly. Uh, and during World Series cricket, he was just such a pillar of strength for us. He was our sanity. Uh, he had a saying, Ock, he said, uh, stay icy calm. And I was, ten I was, I used to tend to get a little bit excited about things at times, and I used to get the stare. And uh, he didn't. He, I, I never heard Rich raise his voice mm. not once. Uh, Ock, stay icy calm. Yeah. And uh, I think that feeling pervaded right through World Series cricket. And there, there are several aspects of World Series cricket that it wouldn't have happened but for some people, Rich and Daphne Benno are two of those people. And you mentioned, Austin, there's a, a chapter in the book regarding Tony Gregg. He paid a pretty heavy price at that time, didn't he, because of the, uh, the affront that uh, the MCC saw themselves being caused by all of this. And he was England captain at the time, but they didn't take long to remove him from that. 
that's true. Uh, watching Tony play prior to World Series cricket, I didn't like him much, to be honest. I thought he was <laughs> he was a bit arrogant, and uh, uh, he got me going like he got most of the Australians going. But I had a lot to do with him once we started. I, I met him shortly after the centenary test. In fact, uh, John Cornell and I signed him in John's uh, front yard in Neutral Bay about two days after the centenary test. And I got to know Tony very well. He was a terrific bloke. He was very supportive. He was very loyal. And like you say, out of what people had to lose, he was probably the one who risked most. Uh, He copped it huge, hugely when he went back to England. Uh, I'm not sure he wasn't pelted with rotten fruit. I think he was, uh, but certainly he was booed loudly and roundly because he continued to play for Sussex and continued to get into the England side as well, as we know. But... Uh, yeah, he he was a, a great guy, a good humour, but over the years uh, we we became very firm friends, and uh, it was very very sad when he when he passed. Yeah, it was, and uh, maybe if he was pelted with rotten food, Austin, maybe he could have had that bloody great white motor, uh, motorbike helmet that he used to wear, because <laughs> he <laughs> well, was the first one, wasn't he? Well, he he wasn't. Quite. Uh, Dennis A. Miss was the first. Oh, right he was the first and only to start with. And then it all changed pretty dramatically when David Hooks got, had his jaw broken. Yeah. In fact, World Series cricket can, can really be thanked for saving some lives because uh, I don't know how long the... You know, like I don't think Viv Richards ever wore a helmet. He just wore the, the cap. But uh, everyone very quickly after the David Hooks issue were, were wearing helmets. They started off like a bicycle helmet straight out of a shop and then uh, funnily enough it was Len Pascoe and in particular Ian Davis who were both World Series cricketers who had a lot to do with the early design which hasn't really changed all that much quite frankly. I think now they've got grills in front of them as well which mm. makes, them e- makes them even better. But you know, I think a lot of players who have been hit on the head, uh, you know, since those days would, would, you know, I'm not saying that helmets wouldn't have come in. I think they probably would have. But uh, there were so many fast bowlers in World Series cricket, that certainly jet-propelled at uh, helmets into the game. And I want to ask you about one name. We've talked about Tony Gregg and Richie Benno and Kerry Packer and John Cornell and some of the big names involved in the formation of World Series cricket. Most people wouldn't know the name John Maley. But would it have worked without John Maley? Absolutely not. Uh, when I'm asked what was the biggest thing that I did for World Series cricket, it was to suggest that John Maley was the curator that we should have that we should get. Uh, that uh, uh, that I signed him uh, on my own. I flew up to, to Brisbane. He was living in a half a house. He's actually sleeping on the floor, if you can believe that, uh, on a mattress. But the mattress was on the floor, so he he didn't have a bed. Uh, and he was the curator at the time of the Gabba. Let's not forget that. But John Maley, he he was an absolute genius, John Maley. Uh, Just imagine this. In four months, he produced four wickets in different centres that didn't have pitches. And every pitch was different in its variety. And every pitch was good, if not excellent. Uh, how he managed to do that, uh, well, he had he had an unlimited budget. We promised him that. Just amazing. And it all came from one bloke with a staff, and wait for it, he had himself and one person <laughs> in each state. I've never seen anyone work as hard as he did. 
mm. over that period of time. Cricket Outlaws is the name of the book. It comes out at a very good time with the Ashes series in full swing and Christmas just around the corner. We'll be back to wrap things up with uh, Austin Robertson on the other side of the break and find out some of the other things that he's done in his sporting life. And we're here for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. Our final segment with Ocker, Austin Robertson Jr. Austin, um, we talked about the great relationships that you formed from your time at World Series Cricket. Was there any relationship that became fractured at the time that um, was irreparably fractured? Uh, it would seem so. Um, uh, you're, you're obviously uh, read the book or you've heard about uh, the the. the problems that I had with John Cornell hmm. like we were inseparable I've got to say from for many many years we would have seen each other every day and every night uh, he lived with me in Perth in, in a house that I owned and then I lived with him in uh, 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 Sydney when I first came over uh, when I had my uh, unit at Cremorne Point he had a room there permanently um, uh, so you know we were we were close and inseparable uh, and I think probably the mistake I made was actually working for him. I, I ended up becoming general manager of Rimfire Films, uh, which was the film company that produced the Crocodile, Crocodile yes. Dundee movies. And, you know, they say money doesn't change. I, I'm not sure that it do, doesn't. Um, anyway, it then became a boss-worker relationship, which mm. was different. Uh, and that didn't last five minutes. I had that. I, I was working in that situation for... 10 or 15 years it was quite some time and uh, actually was living in Byron Bay for, for quite a long time um, and I think it, it was a gradual thing and then finally you know one thing led to another and uh, it, uh, it it seemed to be best that I, I left which I did uh, I went north to uh, Surface Paradise uh, with my family and uh, John stayed in uh, in Byron Bay obviously uh, this was after he had built his beach hotel which was just uh, fabulous. I, I actually sourced all the uh, historical photos for that hotel and wrote the caption. So when I went back there uh, some years later, it was uh, it was good to see that uh, the Paul Rigby mural was still on the on the wall, and so too were all my pictures. <laughs> but it was um, there were so many friends I got out of World Series cricket, and I say this quite openly in the book. My great regret is that I did happen to lose one. Mm. Cricket Outlaws is the name of the book and it takes you back on a fascinating journey, one of the most uh, controversial and influential times in Australian sport and Austin Robertson was at the forefront. I didn't think when I was a nine-year-old kid standing at the Lake Oval 51 years ago that uh, our paths would cross more than half a century later but it's been a delight to talk to you and to get your insights on that turbulent time and also your great football career. Thanks for your time, Austin. Yeah, thanks, Peter. Uh, it's been it's it's great to talk about it, and uh, I've got to say that I'm proud of of what we achieved in World Series cricket, and uh, I'm very very proud of this book as well. So um, thanks for the opportunity to talk. I've I've enjoyed every minute of it. As someone who spends a lot of time on planes, I can't wait to get my hand on one because it will help to pass the time. Thanks again for your time. Thanks, Pete. Austin Robertson Jr. joining us as our special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And we'll be back same time next week right here on 1116 SEN, Melbourne's home of sport. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.